Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver. And we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. We're doing a lecture episode today. We're going to do part two of the Joseph Campbell with Bill Moyers series, The Hero's Journey. So a little over a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, we did Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, part one which was the first part of a series of interviews that were conducted by Bill Moyers with Joseph Campbell. There's six parts in total. We did the first two parts last lecture episode. Now we're doing parts three and four, but this is still the hero's journey part two in the world of midnight on earth. So that's what we're doing this week. I'm super, super stoked because I always Learn so much from Joseph Campbell. I mean, the fact that he can still teach us from wherever he graduated to, wherever he is, that next dimension. He somehow, through the time stream, through the miracle of recording, is able to impart wisdom to us as if he is here. And, and in that way, he is here with us. It's going to be Joseph Campbell myself and of course the guest co-host suprema bryn anderson of vinyl force herbs hello bryn hey that was quite the intro today thank you i kind (laughs) of worked it all together to uh tell people that you're here we're doing the joseph campbell part two it's pretty exciting last time was pretty cool yes it was i'm excited to continue the hero's journey well His information, like I said, is so powerful and you always learn a lot from Joseph and he talks to you in a way that's very real and you can digest the information easier, I guess. I'm not sure. Just something about his presentation takes the edge off of all this (laughs) really powerful information. Not that there's an edge, but it just takes some weight off of it and just makes it approachable. For the average person, for anyone, it's very soothing. His voice is very soothing. I love Joseph Campbell. It's kind of like if you were, you know, hanging out with your grandpa in a rocking chair. Exactly. It's like, you know, giving you this download on the meaning of life and on every possible level. I mean, literally. All right, listen here. Yes, literally, the guy's like the Einstein of spirituality and mythology and those great subjects. And he's like, just talking to you like you're hanging out. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's like Grandpa Joe. <laughs> I'm really hanging out with Grandpa Joe, Joe C. Joe C. And hot chocolate. I've got some coffee and we're going to be listening to this. But before we do that, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find. Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil on the planet, period. Absolutely, period. 
There's nothing else like it. There can't be. Why? Because the method that is used to extract the CBD from the hemp flower is a proprietary method that this company uses. It was developed by a man named Howard Hitt, a.k.a. Big H, and it contains no chemicals, no solvents, no gases, nothing unnatural was used in the development, production, creation of this product. It's 100% organic, and the flower, that hemp flower, is 100% organic, organ-grown hemp. So you know it's the absolute best. Everything about this is top tier. It's elite. I don't know how to say this because it's an experience. You actually have to try it yourself. It's kind of like that with so many things in life. You can scream it from the rooftops, but until a person has direct experience, they don't know. And then they know when they have the experience. There are three styles that Howard sells at bluecobracbd.com. Maximum strength, king cobra, regular strength, little king cobra, and wild thing CBD for pets. Because we want our pets to have the highest quality medicine. Period. Flat out. There's a money back guarantee. If you don't like the product for some reason, you get to keep the product. You get your money back. And if you had to pay shipping, you get that money back as well. But you may not have had to pay shipping because we have a discount code. That gets you free shipping on any order in the continental 48 United States. It is big H, B-I-G, and the letter H. Howard's available at bluecobracbd.com. It has his phone number, his email Highly available guy. He's 76 years old. This is a family business. I urge you to check this out if you've never tried CBD before. Why not go with the absolute best? There's nothing else like this. Say it every week. I'll say it again. Blue Cobra. CBD.com. That is Blue Cobra. CBD.com. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You follow us there. Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, click that button that connects us. So you know exactly what's going on. And if you don't mind, please, please tell a friend. Tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts that would be interested in learning from Joseph Campbell and the other guests that are still in this dimension. You know them well. Tell them about us. Midnightonearth.com. Okay. Did all the things except read Joseph Campbell's bio. Most people know who he is, but... Just to keep it consistent, we always read the guest bio, whether they're graduated from this dimension or still here. Joseph Campbell was an American professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College who worked in comparative mythology 
and comparative religion. His work covers many aspects of the human experience, and Campbell's best-known work is his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in which he discusses his theory of the journey of the archetypal hero shared by world mythologies termed the monomyth. Since the publication of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell's theories have been applied by a wide variety of modern writers and artists. His philosophy has been summarized by his own often repeated phrase, follow your bliss. He gained recognition in Hollywood when George Lucas credited Campbell's work as influencing his Star Wars saga and more. And he's had impact in so many other ways as well. He's an incredible force in all of the cutting-edge esoteric knowledge, I would say. So we're going to listen to this interview, like I said, uh, with Bill Moyers. This is going to be part three and part four of their six-part series. And if you're new to the lecture episodes, which... Some people may be. There's new listeners coming on all the time. I love it. Thank you for joining the Midnight on Earth community family. Loving the growth. Let's do this together. Thank you for showing up. And if you don't know, this is what happens. Bryn and I are going to be listening to this together. And we're going to be taking notes. And as the first part of the recording ends, I'll pop in and let you know I'm starting the second part of the recording. And then after that, we wrap it up and talk about the notes that we've taken and talk about everything we've learned and just reflect on uh, <laughs> everything Joseph Campbell has just shown us. So through the time stream. So on that note, I guess I'm going to go ahead and get started. Brent, how are you feeling? Are you ready for Joseph Campbell part two for us? part three and four of the series. Are you ready? I'm so ready. How ready? Um, I've already filled half a page of notes. We haven't started yet. <laughs> Are you hoping to get some, like a live Q&A with yeah. Joseph Campbell? Look, I know some mediums. We've got some great mediums on the show. Just doodling, postulating, you know. So you're ready. Questions I'd ask. Sure. Yep, I'm ready. Okay. Let's do this. She's ready, everyone. I hope you're ready. Okay, so here we go. This is Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers segment called The First Storytellers. Here we go. What do you think our souls owe to ancient myths? Well, the ancient myths were designed to put the mind, the mental system, into accord with this body system, with this inheritance A harmony. of the body, to harmonize. The mind can ramble off in strange ways and want things that the body does not want. And uh, the myths and rites were means to put the mind in accord with the body and the way of life in accord with the way that nature dictates. So in a way, these old stories live in us. They do indeed. And uh, the uh, stages of a human development are the same today as they were in the ancient times. And the problem of a child 
brought up in a world of uh, discipline, of obedience, and of his dependency on others has to be transcended when one comes to maturity so that you are living now not in dependency but with self-responsible authority. And the problem of the transition from childhood to maturity and then from maturity and full capacity to losing those powers and acquiescing in the natural course of, uh, you might say, the autumn time of life and the passage away. Myths are there to help us go with it, accept nature's way and not hold to something else. The stories are sort of, to me, like messages in a bottle from shores someone else has visited first. Yes, and you're visiting those shores now. And these myths tell me how others have made the passage and how I can make the passage. And, and also what the beauties are of the way. Uh, I feel this now moving into my own last years, you know. The, the myths help me to go with it. What kind of myth? Give me a, a one that has actually helped you. Well, the uh, tradition in India, for instance, of actually changing your whole way of dress, uh, even changing your name as you pass from one stage to another. Uh, when I um, retired from teaching, I, I knew that I had to create a new life, a new way of life, and uh, I changed my manner of, uh, of thinking about my life. Just in terms of that... Uh, notion of moving out of the sphere of achievement into the sphere of enjoyment and appreciation and uh, re relaxing into the wonder of it all. And then there is that final passage through the dark gate. That, well, that's no problem at all. The problem in middle life, when the body has reached its climax of power and begins to lose it, is to identify yourself not with the body which is falling away, but with the consciousness of which it is a vehicle. And when you can do that, and this is something I learned from my myths, what am I? Am I the, uh, the bulb that carries the light, or am I the light of which the bulb is a vehicle? And this body is a vehicle of consciousness. And if you can identify with the consciousness, you can watch this thing go like an old car. There goes the fender, there goes this. But it's expectable, you know? And then gradually, the whole thing drops off and consciousness rejoins consciousness. I mean, that's, it's no longer in this particular environment. And the myths, the stories have, have brought this consciousness. Well, I live with these myths and they tell me to do this all the time. And, uh, this is the problem which can be then metaphorically understood as identifying with the Christ in you. And uh, the Christ in you doesn't die. The Christ in you survives death and resurrects. Or it can be with Shiva. Shiva Han, I am Shiva. And this is the great meditation of the, of the, the yogis in the Himalayas. And uh, one doesn't have even to have a metaphorical image like that if one uh, has a mind that's willing to just relax and uh, identify itself with that which moves it. You say that the image of death is the beginning of mythology. What do you mean? How is that? Well, 
All I can say to that is that the earliest evidence we have of anything like mythological thinking uh, is associated with grave burials. And they suggest what? That men, women saw life and then they didn't see it and they wondered about it? It must have been. I mean, one has only to, you know, imagine what one's own experience would be. The person was alive and warm before you and talking to you. He's now lying there, getting cold, beginning to rot. Something was there that isn't there. And where is it? Now, animals have this experience, certainly, of their companions dying and so forth. But uh, there's no evidence that they've had any further thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. Also, before the time of Neanderthal man, it's in his period that the first burials appear, that, of which we have evidence, uh, people were dying and they're just thrown away. But um, here there's a concern. Have you ever visited any of these burial sites? I've been to Le Moustier. That was the... Uh, one of the earliest burial caves that were found. And you find there what they buried with the dead. Uh, yes. These uh, grave burials with grave gear, that is to say weapons and sacrifices round about, certainly suggest the idea of the continued life beyond the uh, visible one. First one that was discovered, a person is put down, resting as though asleep, a young boy with a beautiful hand axe beside him. Now, at the same time, we have evidence of shrines devoted to animals that have been killed. The shrines specifically are in the Alps, in very high caves, and they are of cave bear skulls. And there is one very interesting one with the long bones of the cave bear in the cave bear's jaw. What does that say to you? Burials. My friend has died and he survives. The animals that I've killed must also survive. I must make some kind of atonement relationship to them. The indication is of the notion of a, a plane of being that's behind the visible plane and which is somehow supportive of the visible one to which we have to relate. I would say that's the basic theme of all mythology. That there, there is, is a world? That there is a visible an invisible plane supporting the visible one. Now, whether it is thought of as a world, world. or simply as an energy, uh, that differs from time and time and place to place. What we don't know supports what we do know. That's right. The basic hunting myth, I would say, is of a kind of covenant between the animal world and the human world, where the animal gives its life willingly. They are regarded generally as willing victims with the understanding that their life, which transcends their physical entity will be returned to the soil or to the mother through some ritual of restoration. And uh, the principal rituals, for instance, and the principal divinities are associated with the main hunting animal. 
the animal who is the master animal and uh, sends the flocks to be killed, you know? The Indians of the American Plains was the buffalo. You go to the northwest coast, it's the salmon. The great festivals have to do with the run of salmon coming in. When you go to South Africa, the elands, the big magnificent antelope, is the principal animal for the bushman, for example. And the principal animal, though, is the, the one that furnishes the food. The food. So they they grew up between human beings and animals, uh, a bonding, as you say, which required one to be consumed by the other. That's the way life is. Do you think this troubled early 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 man? That Absolutely. He felt That's guilt? why you have the rights because it did trouble. What kind of rights? Rituals of appeasement to the animals, of thanks to the animal. A very interesting aspect here is the identity of the hunter with the animal. You mean after the animal has after been After the animal shot. has been killed. The hunter then has to fulfill certain rights in a kind of participation mystique, a mystic participation with the animals whose death he has brought about and whose meat is to become his life. So the killing is not simply slaughter. At any rate, it's a ritual act. It's a recognition of your dependency and of the voluntary giving of this food to you by the animal who has given it. It's a beautiful thing. It turns life into a mythological experience. The hut becomes what? It becomes a ritual. Mm-hmm. The hunt is a ritual. Expressing a hope of resurrection, that the animal was food and you needed the animal to return. And, and, and some kind of respect for the animal that was killed. That's the thing that gets me all the time in this uh, uh, hunting ceremonial system. Respect for the, the respect animal. Respect for the animal and more than respect. I mean, that animal becomes a messenger of, of divine power, you see. And you wind up as the hunter killing the messenger. Killing the god. What does this do? Does it, does it cause guilt? Does it cause... No, no. Guilt is what is wiped out by the myth. Uh, it, is a, it, is a, it is not a personal act. You are performing the work of nature. For example, in Japan, in uh, Hokkaido, northern Japan, among the, the Ainu people, whose principal mountain deity is the bear, when it is killed, there is a ceremony of feeding the bear a feast of its own flesh. As though he were present, and he is present, he served his own meat for dinner. And there's a conversation between the mountain god, the bear, and the people. They say, if you will give us the privilege of uh, entertaining you again, we'll give you the privilege of another bear sacrifice. If the cave bear were not appeased, uh, the animals wouldn't appear, and these primitive hunters would starve to death. So they began to perceive some kind of power on which they were dependent greater than their own. And that's the power of the animal master. Now, when we sit down to meal, uh, we thank God, you know, our our idea of God for having given us this. Um, These people thank the animal. And is this the first evidence we have of an act of worship, of of power superior to man? Yeah. 
and, and the animal was superior because the animal provided food. Well, now, in, in contrast to our relationship to animals, where we see animals as a lower form of life, and in the Bible we're told, you know, we're the masters and so forth, uh, early hunting people don't have that relationship to the animal. The animal is in many ways superior. Um, he has powers that the human being doesn't have. And then certain animals take on a persona, don't they? The buffalo, the raven, oh, the eagle. very strongly. Well, I was up in the northwest uh, coast back in 1932. It was a wonderful trip. And the Indians along the way were still carving totem poles. The villagers had new totem poles still. And uh, there we saw the ravens, and we saw the eagles, and we saw the animals that played roles in the myths. And they had the character, the quality of these animals. There's a very intimate knowledge and, and friendly, neighborly relationship to these creatures. And then they killed some of them, you see. The animal had something to do with the shaping of the myths of those people, just as the buffalo for the Indians of the plains played an enormous role. They're the ones that bring the tobacco gift, the mystical pipe and all this kind of thing, it comes from a buffalo. And when the animal becomes the giver of uh, a ritual and so forth, they do ask the animal for advice and the animal becomes the model for how to live. You remember the story of the buffalo's wife? That's a basic legend of the, of the Blackfoot tribe and um, is the origin legend of their buffalo dance rituals. Which had by the, which they uh, uh, invoke the cooperation of the animals in this play of life. When you realize the size of some of these tribal groups to feed them required a good deal of, uh, of meat. And uh, one way of acquiring meat for the winter would be to drive a buffalo herd to stampede it over a rock cliff. Well, this story is of a Blackfoot tribe long, long ago, and they couldn't get the uh, uh, buffalo to go over the cliff. The buffalo would approach the cliff and then turn aside. So it looked as though they weren't going to have any meat for that uh, winter. Well, the daughter of one of the houses, getting up early in the morning to draw the water for the family and so forth, looks up, and there, right above the cliff, were the buffalo. And she said, oh, if you only come over, I'd marry one of you. And to her surprise, they all began coming over. That was surprise number one. Surprise number two was when one of the old buffaloes, the shaman of the herd, uh, comes and says, all right, girly, off we go. Oh, no, she says. Oh, yes, he said. You made your promise. We've kept our side of the bargain. Look at all my relatives here, dead. Off we go. Well, the family gets up in the morning and they look around and where's Minnehaha, you know? With the father, and you know how Indians are, he looked around and he said, she's run off with a buffalo. He could see by the footsteps. So he says, uh, oh, I'm going to get her back. So he puts on his walking moccasins, bow and arrow and so forth, and goes out over the plains. He's gone quite a distance when uh, he's, he feels uh, he better sit down and rest. And he comes to a place that's called a buffalo wallow, where the buffalo like to come and roll around and get the lice off and roll around in the mud. So he sits down there, 
and is thinking what he should do now when along comes a magpie, not a beautiful flashing bird, and it's one of those clever birds that uh, has shamanic qualities. Magical qualities. Magical. And the man says to him, Oh, beautiful bird, he said, my daughter ran away with a buffalo. Um, uh, have you seen, will you hunt around and see if you can find her out on the plane somewhere? And the magpie says, well, there's a lovely girl with the buffaloes right now over there, just a, a bit away. Well, he said, the man, will you go tell her that her, her daddy's here, her father's here at the buffalo wallow? Magpie flies over and uh, the girl is there among the buffalo. They're all asleep. I don't know what she's doing, knitting or something of this kind. And the magpie comes over close to her and he says, your father's over at the wallow waiting for you. Oh, she says, this is terrible. This is dangerous. I mean, he, these buffalo, they'll kill us. You tell him to wait. I'll be over. I'll try to work this out. So her buffalo husband's behind her and he wakes up and uh, <clears throat> takes off a horn. He says, go to the wallow and get me a drink. So she... Uh, takes the horn and goes over, and there's her father. He grabs her by the arm. He says, come. She says, no, 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 this is real dangerous. The whole herd, they'll be right after us. I have to work this thing out. Now let me just go back. So she gets the water and goes back, and he, fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of an Indian, you know, that sort of thing. And she says, no, nothing of the kind. He says, yes, indeed. So he gives a buffalo bellow and they all get up and they all do a slow buffalo dance with their tails raised and they go over and they trample that poor man to death so that he disappears entirely. He's just all broken up to pieces and all gone. The girl's crying and uh, her buffalo husband says, so you're crying? This is my daddy. He said, yeah, but what about us? There are our children, our wives, our parents and you crying about your daddy well apparently he was a kind of sympathetic compassionate buffalo and he said uh, well i'll tell you if you can bring your daddy back to life again i'll let you go so she turns to the magpie and says uh, see peck around a little bit and see if you can find a bit of daddy and the magpie does so and uh, he comes up finally with a vertebra just one little bone. And the little girl says, that, that's plenty. Now we put this down on the ground and she puts her blanket over it and she sings a revivifying song, a magical song with great power. And presently, <clears throat> yes, there's a man under the blanket. She looks daddy all right, but he's not breathing yet. A few more stanzas of whatever the song was and he stands up and the buffalo are amazed. And they say, well, why don't you do this for us? We'll teach you now our buffalo dance. And when you will have killed our families, you do this dance and sing this song, and we'll all be back alive again. That's the basic idea, that through the ritual, that dimension is struck which transcends temporality and out of which life comes and back into which it goes. And it goes back to this whole idea of death, burial, and resurrection, not only for human beings. But, but for the animals, too. So the story of the buffalo's wife was told to confirm the reverence. That's right. What happened when the white man came and slaughtered this animal of reverence? That was a sacramental violation. I mean, they, in the 80s, when the buffalo hunt 
uh, was undertaken, you know, the 1880s, Kit Carson, years ago. Buffalo Bill yeah. and so forth. Uh, when I was a boy, uh, whenever we went for sleigh rides, we had a buffalo robe. Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo robes all over the place. This was the, the, the sacred animal of the Indian. These hunters go out with repeating rifles and then shoot down the whole herd and leave it there. They take the skin to sell and the body's left to rot. This is a sacrilege. And it, it really is a sacrilege. It turned the, it turned the buffalo from a thou to an it. The Indians addressed the buffalo as, as thou, thou, an object of reverence. The Indians addressed life as a thou. I mean, trees, and stones, and everything else. You can address anything as a thou, and you can feel the change in your psychology as you do it. The ego that sees a thou is not the same ego that sees an it. Your whole psychology changes when you address things as an it. Whether it's a woman. And when you go to war with the people, the problem of the newspapers is to turn those people into its so that they're not thou's. That was an incredible moment in, in the evolution of American society when the buffalo was slaughtered. That was the final exclamation point behind the destruction of the Indian civilization because you were destroying. Can you imagine what this experience must have been for a people within 10 years to lose their environment, to lose their food supply, to lose the object, uh, the central object of their ritual life. So it is in your belief that, that it was in this period of hunting man and woman, the time of hunting man, that, that human beings began to sense a stirring of the mythic imagination, the wonder of things yeah. that they didn't know. Uh, there is this burst of magnificent art and all the evidence you need of uh, a mythic imagination in full career. You visited some of the great painted caves. Oh, yes. Europe. Tell me what you remember when first you looked upon those underground Well, caves. you didn't want to leave. Here you come into an enormous uh, chamber, uh, like a great cathedral with these animals painted. And they're painted with a life like the life of a ink on silk in the Japanese painting. And um, when you realize the darkness is inconceivable, we're there with electric lights. But in a couple of instances, the concierge, the man who was showing us through, turned off the lights and you were never in darker darkness in your life. It was like a, I don't know, just a complete knockout of, you don't know where you are, whether you're looking north, south, east, or west. All orientation is gone and you're in a darkness that never saw the sun. Then they turn the lights on again and you see these gloriously painted animals. A bull that will be 20 feet long and painted so that the haunches uh, will be represented by a swelling in the rock. You know, they take account of the whole thing. It's, it's incredible. Do you ever look at these primitive art objects and think not of the art, but of the man or woman standing there painting or creating? I find that's where I speculate. Uh, this is what hits you when you go into those caves, I can tell you that. 
what was in their mind when they were doing that. And that's not an easy thing to do. And how did they get up there? And how did they see anything? And what kind of light did they have? Uh, little flashing torches, throwing flickering things, and then to get something of that grace and perfection. And with respect to the problem of beauty, is this beauty intended or is it something that is the natural expression of a beautiful spirit? You know what I mean? Mm. When you hear a bird sing, the beauty of the bird's song, is this intentional? In what sense is it intentional? But it's the expression of the bird, the beauty of the bird's spirit, you might almost say. And uh, I think that way very often about this art. To what degree was the intention of the artist what we would call aesthetic, or in what, to what degree expressive, you know, and to what degree something that they simply had uh, learned to do that way. It's, it's a difficult point. When a spider makes a beautiful web, the beauty comes out of the spider's nature, you know, it's uh, instinctive beauty. And how much of the beauty of our own lives is of our, the beauty of being alive? And how much of it is, is a, a conscious intentional? That's a big question. You call them temple caves. Yeah. Why, why temple? A temple with images and um, stained glass windows, uh, cathedrals, are a landscape of the soul. You move into a world of spiritual images. That's what this is. When Jean and I, my wife and I, drove down from Paris, to this part of France, we stopped off at Chartres Cathedral. There is a cathedral. When you walk into the cathedral, it's the mother womb of your spiritual life. Mother Church, all the forms around are significant of spiritual values. And the imagery is in anthropomorphic form. God and Jesus and uh, the saints and all in human, human form. Human form. Then we went down to Lascaux. The images were in animal form. The form is secondary. The message is what's important. Here. And the message of the cave? The message of the cave is of a relationship of time to eternal powers that um, is somehow to be uh, experienced in that place. Now, I tell you, when you're down in those caves, it's a, it's a strange transformation of consciousness you have. You feel this is the, the womb. This is the place from which life comes. And that world up there in the sun with all those feet, that's a secondary world. Mm. This is primary. I mean, this just overcomes you. You had that feeling when I, you were I had it every time. Now, what were these caves used for? Yeah. The speculations that... Uh, are most uh, common of scholars interested in this is that they had to do with the initiation of boys into the hunt. Uh, you go in there, it's dangerous. Uh, it's very dangerous. It's completely dark. It's cold and dank. You're banging your head on projections all the time. And it was a place of fear. And the boys were to overcome all that and uh, go into the womb of the earth. And the shaman or whoever it was that would be uh, helping uh, you through would not be making it easy. And then there was a release once you got into that vast torchlit chamber down there. What was the tribe, what was the tradition trying to say to the boy? That is the womb land from which all the animals come. And the, the rituals down there have to do with the 
generation of a situation that will be uh, propitious for the hunt. And the boys were to learn not only to hunt, but how to respect the animals and what rituals to perform and how in their own lives, no longer to be little boys, but to be men. Because those hunts were very, very dangerous hunts, believe me. And uh, these are the original men's right sanctuaries where the boys became no longer their mother's sons, but their father's sons. Don't you wonder what effect this had on a, on a boy? Well, you can, you can go through it today, actually, in, in uh, cultures that are still having the initiations of young boys. They give them an ordeal, a terrifying ordeal, that the youngster has to survive, makes a man of him, you know. What would happen to me as a child if I went through one of these rites? As far as well, we, can... we know what they do in Australia. And when a boy gets to be, you know, a little bit uh, ungovernable, uh, one fine day, the men come in, and they're naked except for stripes of white down that have been stuck on their bodies in stripes with their men's blood. They use their own blood for glue, gluing this on. And they're swinging the bull roarers, which are the voice of the spirits. And they come as spirits. The boy will try to take refuge with his mother. She'll pretend to try to protect him. The men just take him away. A mother's no good from then on, you see. He's no longer a little boy. He's in the men's group. And then they put him really through an ordeal. These are the rites, you know, of circumcision, subincision, and... The whole so purpose is to... Turn him into a member of the tribe. And a hunter. And a hunter. Because that was the way of life. Yeah, but most important is to live according to the needs and uh, values of that tribe. Hmm. He is initiated in uh, a short period of time into the whole culture context of his people. So myth relates directly to ceremony and tribal ritual. And the absence of myth can mean the end of ritual. A ritual of is the enactment of a myth. By participating in a ritual, you are participating in a myth. And what does it mean, you think, to young boys today that we absent these myths? Well, the confirmation ritual is the counterpart today of, of these rites. As a little Catholic boy, uh, you uh, choose your confirmed name, the name you're going to be confirmed by, uh, and uh, you go up. But instead of having them uh, scarify you, knock your teeth out and all, they, the bishop gives you a mild slap on the cheek. It's been reduced to that. Nothing's happened to you. The, uh, the Jewish counterpart is the bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, whether it works, actually, to affect a psychological transformation, I suppose will depend on the individual case. There's no problem in these old days. The boy came out with a different body, and uh, he'd gone through something. What about uh, what about the female? I mean, it, 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 most of the figures in the in the temple caves are are, are male. Was this yeah. was this a kind of secret society for males? It only? wasn't a secret society. It was that the boys had to go through it. 
Now, uh, with the, we don't know exactly what happens with the female in, in this period because we have very little evidence to uh, tell us. In primary cultures today, the girl becomes a woman with her first menstruation. Uh, it happens to her. I mean, nature does it to her. And so she has undergone the transformation. And what is her initiation? Typically, it is to sit in a little hut for a certain number of days and realize what she is. How does she do that? She sits there. She's now a woman. And what is a woman? A woman is a vehicle of life. And life has overtaken her. She is a vehicle now of life. Woman's what it's all about. The, 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 the giving of birth and the giving of nourishment. She's identical with the earth goddess and her powers. And she's got to realize that about herself. The boy does not have a happening of that kind. He has to be turned into a man and voluntarily become a servant of something greater than himself. The woman becomes the vehicle of nature. The man becomes the vehicle of the society, the social order and the social purpose. So what happens when a society no longer embraces powerful mythology? What we've got on our hands. As I say, if you want to find what it means not to have a, to have a society without any rituals, read the New York Times. And you'd find? Well, the news of the day. Wars young people, young people who uh, don't know how to behave in a civilized society. Half the, I imagine, 50% of the crime is by young people in their 20s and early 30s that just behave like barbarians. Society has provided them no rituals None. by which they become members. There's been a reduction, a reduction, a reduction of ritual. Rit Even in the Roman Catholic Church, my God. They've translated the Mass out of the ritual language into a language that has a lot of domestic associations. So that, uh, I mean, every time now <clears throat> that I, 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 I read the Latin of uh, and, uh, the Mass, or something like that, I, I get that pitch again that it's supposed to give, a language that throws you out of the field of your domesticity, you know? The altar is turned so that the priest's back is to you, and with him you address yourself outward like that. Now they've turned the altar around. It looks like Junior Ch uh, Julia Child giving a demonstration, and, and it's all homely and cozy. And they play guitar. They play guitar. They listen, they've forgotten what, what the function of a ritual is, is to pitch you out, not to wrap you back in where you have been all the time. So ritual that once conveyed an inner reality is now merely form. And that's true in, 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 in the rituals of society and the, and the personal rituals of marriage and religion. Well, with respect to ritual, it must be kept alive. And uh, so much of our, our ritual is dead. It's extremely interesting to read of the primitive elementary cultures, uh, how the, the folk tales, the myths, they are transforming all the time in terms of the circumstances of those people. People move from an area where, let's say, uh, the, uh, the vegetation is the main uh, support 
out into the plains. Most of our plains Indians uh, in the period of the horse riding Indians, you know, had originally been of the Mississippian culture along the Mississippi in uh, settled uh, dwelling uh, towns mm -hmm. and agriculturally based uh, uh, villages. And then they uh, received the horse from the Spaniards and it makes it possible then to venture out in the plains and handle a great hunt of the the buffalo herds you see and the mythology transforms from vegetation to buffalo and you can see the structure of the earlier uh, vegetation mythologies under the mythologies of the the Dakota Indians and the Pawnee Indians and uh, the Kiowa and so forth you're saying that the environment shapes the story they respond to it do you see but we have a, a tradition that comes from the first millennium BC somewhere else, and we're handling that. It has not turned over and assimilated the uh, qualities of our culture and the new things that are possible and the new vision of the universe. It must be kept alive. The only people that can keep it alive are artists of artists. one kind or another. That the artist is, his function is, the mythologization of the environment and the world. Artist being the poet, the musician, the, the author. Exactly. The writer. Yes. And I think we've had a couple of greats in the recent times. I think of James Joyce as, as uh, such a, a revealer of the mysteries of growing up and becoming a human being. And uh, for me, he and uh, Thomas Mann were my, my principal gurus, you might say as I was trying to shape my own life. I think in the visual arts, there were two men whose work seemed to me to handle mythological themes in a marvelous way, and one was Paul Clay and the other Picasso. These two men really knew what they were doing all the way, I think, and had a great versatility in their revelations. I mean, our artists are the myth-makers of our day. The myth-makers in earlier days were the counterparts of our artists. They drew the paintings on the walls, yes. they performed the rituals. There's an old romantic idea uh, in German, das Volk dichtet, that say that the uh, poetry of uh, the traditional cultures and the ideas come out of the folk. They do not. They come out of an elite experience, the experience of people particularly gifted, whose ears are open to the song of the universe, and that they speak to the folk, and there is an answer from the folk which is then received. There's an interaction, but the first impulse comes from above, not from below, in the shaping of folk traditions. So who would have been in these early elementary cultures, as you call them, the equivalent of the poets today? The shaman. The shaman is the person who has in his late childhood, early youth, could be male or female, had a, an overwhelming psychological experience that uh, turns them totally inward. The uh, whole unconscious has opened up and they've fallen into it. And it's been described many, many times and it occurs all the way uh, from Siberia right through the Americas down to Tierra del Fuego. It's a kind of schizophrenic crack up, the shaman experience. What kind of uh, experience? Dying and resurrecting, you know, uh, being on the brink of death and coming back, actually experience the death experience. People who have very deep dreams, dream is a great source of the spirit. 
and uh, then people who in the woods have had mystical encounters. Well, let me, let me let me try to be specific about it. The shaman becomes some person in in a society who is drawn by experience from the normal world into the world of the gifted. That's right. Most of us think of shaman as a, a magician, mm-hmm. but they play a much more important role than simply being a Oh, no, they a play trickster. the role that uh, the priesthood plays in our uh, society. These are the that, first the, priests? Well, there's a major difference, as I see it, between a shaman and a priest. A priest is a functionary of a social sort. The society uh, worships certain deities in a certain way, and the priest becomes ordained as a functionary to carry on that ritual. And the deity that to whom he is devoted is a deity that was there before he came along. The shaman's uh, powers are symbolized in familiars, deities of his own personal experience, and his authority comes out of a psychological experience, not a social ordination. Do you understand what I mean? And the one who had this psychological experience, this traumatic experience, this ecstasy, would become the interpreter for others of things not seen? He would become the interpreters of a heritage of mythological uh, life, you might say, yes. And ecstasy was a part of it very often in the shamanic. It, it is ecstasy. The yes, trance no dance, for example, in the in in the Bushman society. Now, there's there's a fantastic uh, example of something. Um, the, the little Bushman groups. Uh, the whole life is one of great great tension. Uh, the, the male and female sexes are, uh, what we say, in in a disciplined way separate. The, the men have a certain field of uh, concerns, their weapons and the poisons and the hunt and all that, and the women have a certain field of concern, the bringing up the children, the nourishing of the children, so forth and so on. Only in the dance do the two come together. And they come together this way. The women sit in a circle or a group, and uh, they then become the center around which the men dance. And they control the dance and what goes on with the men through their own singing and beating of the thighs. What's the significance of that, that the woman is controlling the dance? Well, the woman is life and the man is the servant of life. And, uh, and during the course of this circling, circling is a very tense style of movement the men have. Uh, suddenly that one of them will pass out. He's entranced now, and this is a description of an experience. When people sing, I dance. I enter the earth. I go in at a place like a place where people drink water. I travel a long way, very far. When I emerge, I'm already climbing. I'm climbing threads. I climb one and leave it. Then I climb another one, then I leave it, and I climb another. When you arrive at God's place, you make yourself small. You come in small to God's place. You do what you have to do there. Then you return to where everyone is. You come and come and come, and finally you enter your body again. All the people who have stayed behind are waiting for you. They fear you. You enter, enter the earth, and you return to enter the skin of your body. And you say, That is the sound of your return to your body. Then you begin to sing. The Utum masters are there around. They take hold of your head and blow about the sides of your face. This is how you manage to be alive again. Friends, if they don't do that to you, you die. 
you just die and are dead. Friends, this is what it does, this tum that I do, this tum here that I dance. This is an actual experience of transit from the earth to through the realm of mythological images to, to God or to the seat of, the, uh, of power. It becomes something of the other mind of us. It is exactly the other mind. And, and the way God is imaged, God is transcendent, of, um, finally, of, of <laughs> anything like a name of God. As the Hindus say, beyond names and forms, beyond Dhammarupam, beyond names and forms, no tongue has soiled it. No word has reached it. But Joe, can, can Westerners grasp this kind of mystical trans-theological experience. It does transcend theology. It leaves theology behind. I mean, if you're locked to the image of God in a culture where science determines your perceptions of reality, how can you experience this ultimate ground that the shamans talk about? The best example I know in our literature is that beautiful book by John Neihart called Black Elk Speaks. Black Elk was... Black Elk was... A young Sioux or Dakota, as they also called, a boy around nine years old, uh, b before the American cavalry had encountered the Sioux. They were the great people of the plains. And uh, <clears throat> this boy became sick, his, uh, psychologically sick. His family, uh, I'm telling the typical shaman story. Uh, the child begins to tremble and is uh, uh, immobilized, and the family is terribly concerned about it. And uh, they send for a shaman who had had the experience in his own youth to come as a psychoanalyst, you might say, and pull the youngster out of it. But instead of relieving him of the uh, deities, he is adapting him to the deities and the deities to himself, you might say. This, it's a, a different problem from that of psychoanalysis, where you, uh, you remember, I think it was Nietzsche who said, be careful lest in casting out your devil you cast out the best thing that's in you. Uh, here, the deities who have been encountered the powers, let's call them, uh, are, are retained. The connection is retained. It's not broken. And, uh, and these men then become the spiritual advisors and gift givers of their people. Well, what uh, happened with this young boy, he was about nine years old, was he had a vision, and the vision is described, and it's a vision prophetic of the terrible future that his tribe was to have, but it also spoke of the possible positive aspects of it. It was a vision of what he called the hoop of his nation, uh, realizing that it was one of many hoops, which is something that we haven't all learned well enough yet. And the cooperation of all the hoops of all the nations in grand processions and so forth. But more than that, it was an experience of himself as um, going through the realms of spiritual uh, imagery that were of his culture and assimilating their import. And it comes to one great statement, which for me is a key statement to the understanding of myth and symbols. He says, I saw myself on the central mountain of the world, the highest place. And I had a vision 
because I was seeing in a sacred manner of the world. And the sacred central mountain was Harney Peak in South Dakota. And then he says, but the central mountain is everywhere. That is a real mythological realization. Why? It distinguishes between the local cult image, Harney Peak, and its connotation, the center of the world. The center of that, of the world is the hub of the universe, Axis Mundi, you know, the central point, pole star around which all revolves. The central point of the world is the point where stillness and movement are together. Movement is time. Stillness is eternity, realizing the relationship of the temporal moment to the eternal, not moment, but uh, forever, is uh, the sense of life. Realizing how the, this moment in your life is actually a moment of eternity and the experience of the eternal aspect of what you're doing in the temporal experience is the mythological experience. And he had it. So, so is the central mountain of the world Jerusalem, Rome, Benares, Lhasa, Mexico City, you know? Mexico City, Jerusalem is symbolic of a spiritual principle as the center of the world. So this little Indian was saying there is a shining point where all lines intersect? That's exactly what he said. He was saying God has no circumference. God is an intelligible sphere. That's say a sphere known to the mind, not to the senses, whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. And the center, Bill, is right where you're sitting. And the other one is right where I'm sitting. And each of us is a manifestation of that mystery. Okay, so that was part one, the first storytellers. Part one of this two-part segment here. And this is the second part. The interview with Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. This one's called Sacrifice and Bliss. Here we go. What does it mean to have a sacred place? This is a term I like to use now as an absolute necessity for anybody today. You must have a room or a certain hour a day or so where you do not know what was in the newspapers that morning. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe to anybody. You don't know what anybody owes to you but a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and uh, what you might be. This is the place of creative incubation. And uh, first you may find that nothing's happening there, but if you have a sacred place and use it and take advantage of it, uh, something will happen. This place does for you what the planes did for the for them, the whole thing was a sacred place, do you see? But most of our action is economically or socially determined and does not come out of our life. I don't know whether you've had the experience I've had, but 
uh, as you get older, the, the claims of the environment upon you are so great that you hardly know where the hell you are. Uh, what is it you intended? You're always doing something for, that is required of you. Uh, this minute, that minute, another minute. Where is your, your, your bliss station? You know, mm. try to find it. Get a phonograph and put on the records the music that you really love. Even if it's corny music that nobody else respects. I mean, the one that you like or the book you want to read. Like, get it done and um, have a place in which to do it. There, you get the thou feeling of life. These people had it for the whole world that they were living in. We talked about the effect of the spreading plane on mythology, this plane clearly bounded by a circular horizon with that great blue dome of an exalting heaven above, hawks and eagles hovering the blazing sun passing, mm. the night moon rising. Mm. And I can see the effect on people's stories of that. But what about the people who lived in the dense foliage of the jungle? Total transformation of environment and of psychology and everything else. No horizon. No horizon. No dome of the sky. No dome of the sky. A lot of birds up there mm. and the heavy vegetation underneath with scorpions and poisonous serpents. And in between... Distances of trees and trees and trees. No sense of perspective. Colin Turnbull tells us a marvelous story of bringing a pygmy out of the forest. He brings uh, this uh, pygmy who'd never been out of the jungle onto a mountain top and suddenly uh, they come over the hill and there's an extensive plain out there and the poor little uh, fellow was utterly terrified had no way of judging perspective and distance. He thought that the animals grazing on the plain out there were so small that they were ants, that they were just across the way and so forth. And it just totally baffled. He rushes back into the forest. You have a different mythology there. You have a different relationship to the hunt and everything else. The forest is home. You are at home in the forest where you and I would be perhaps ill at ease thinking what's behind that tree and all this kind of thing. The, the sense of, of the beautiful, simple delight in their, their forest and their deity is the master of the forest, the forest master. And what impresses me is that these people, the hunters and, and, and the searchers for the roots and for the berries, mm. they're participating in their landscape. They are part of that world. Absolutely. And it becomes sacred to them. Place every, becomes sacred. Every feature of it does. We moderns are stripping the world of its natural revelations of I nature. Know it. I think of that, you remember that wonderful pygmy legend of the little boy who finds the song of the most beautiful, the bird of the most beautiful song in the forest? And uh, he brings it home, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. And uh, he asks his father to bring food for the bird, and the father doesn't want to feed only a bird. Uh, and one time, the father kills the bird, and when he killed the bird, he killed his own life, and he died. And, That's it. And, uh, and, the and the legend says, the man killed the bird, and with the bird he killed the song, and with the song himself 
I mean, isn't that a story about what happens when human beings destroy their environment, destroy their world, destroy nature and the revelation destroy of nature? Destroy their own nature. Human nature, too. They kill the song. They kill the song. And isn't mythology the story of the song? Mythology is the song. It's the, the flight of the imagination inspired by the energies of the, of the body and in its life. What happened as human beings turned from the hunting of animals to the planting of seeds? What happened to the mythic imagination? Well, uh, I try to think of it this way. Uh, an animal, as I think I've said before, is sort of an, an, a, a total entity. And when you kill that animal, that animal is dead. But when you cut down a plant, uh, new sprouts come out. Uh, pruning I mean, is, uh, you know, helpful to a plant. Also in forests, where a good deal of the origination of myth is to be uh, recognized, out of rot comes, comes life. Uh, even in these forests here of the, the beautiful redwoods, I was in a wonderful forest right near Mendocino, and there there are some great, great stumps from enormous trees that were cut down some decades and decades ago. And out of them are coming these bright new little children who are part of the same plant. Uh, so there's a sense of uh, death as not death somehow, that uh, death is required for, for new, fresh life and so on. And the individual isn't quite an individual. He is a member of a plant. Jesus uses the term, you know, where he says, I am the vine and uh, you are the branches. Uh, that vineyard idea is a totally different one from the separate entity of the animal. And this makes a difference on the stories you oh, tell about. Oh, the whole feeling about what life is. What stories did this experience of the planter give rise to? Your favorite stories in, in, in plant development? Well, the uh, cutting up and burial and then growing of the plant world, the world of the plant that you eat being already a cut up dead body is, is the dominant motif, I would say, in most of the tales. It occurs all over the place, particularly in the Pacific cultures and uh, in the Americas. Tell me that story of the origin of maize as, as Longfellow borrowed it from the Chippewas, didn't he, or the Algonquins? Well, it's an Algonquin story, and uh, it, it is simply of the boy in his vision. He sees a young man come to him with uh, plumes on his head and uh, green and so forth, and the visitant invites the young man to a wrestling match and allows them to win and wins and wins. This happens three or four times. But he tells them, the last time I come, you must kill me and bury me and take care of the place where you will have buried me. And the boy then, uh, in the last one, actually does what he has been told to do, plants the man, uh, the visitant, and in time comes back and sees the, the corn growing. And it was a boy who had been uh, concerned for his father, who was a hunter, but old. And he was thinking, isn't there some other way to get food besides this one? And so it came to him out of his intentions. A lovely story. Some other way of getting food than hunting. Yeah. But the idea is that this visitor, this 
figure in the vision has to die and be buried before the plant can grow from the remains of his body. That's the main theme. It, it comes up, uh, I mean, almost a duplicate of this one in throughout Polynesia, for instance. Well, there was one in Polynesia about the legend of the maiden Hina. You remember that one? Well, uh, all of the legends in the in the Polynesian area have a maiden named Hina, and she's associated with the moon. And the, the you know the death and resurrection of the moon is a, is a dominant theme. What happens to her in this legend? Well, the girl who uh, got, loves to bathe in a certain pool, and there's a great eel that uh, is swimming around in the pool, and uh, day after day he scrapes across her her thigh as she's. Uh, bathing and uh, then one fine lovely day he turns into a young man and uh, he becomes her lover for uh, a moment and then goes away and comes back again and back again and then one time when he comes he says just as the uh, Algonquian uh, visits him uh, now next time I come to visit you you must kill me and uh, cut off my head and bury my head and she does so and uh, there grows from the buried head a coconut tree. And when you pick a coconut and look at the coconut, you can see it's just the size of the head and you can see eyes and things and the little nodules that uh, simulate the head. So what you have is the same story springing up in cultures unrelated to each other. Now, what is it Well, saying? to such an extent that it's stunning. And it, after years and years and years of reading these things, I'm still overwhelmed at the similarities in cultures that are far, far apart. There are two explanations of this. Uh, one explanation is that uh, the human psyche is essentially the same all over the world. It is the inward aspect of the human body, which is essentially the same all over the world, with the same organs, with the same instincts, with the same impulse systems, with the same conflicts, the same fears. There is also the counter-theory of diffusion. Now, for instance, when agriculture is first developed, let's say, in the Near East or in Southeast Asia, I mean, these are the two big centers in the old world, uh, then the art of tilling the soil goes forth from this area, and along with it goes a mythology that has to do with fertilizing the earth and bringing up the plants, killing the body, cutting it up by burying it and having the plant come. That myth will go with the agricultural tradition. It will, you won't find it in a planting, in a hunting culture tradition. Mm -hmm. So that there are historical as well as psychological aspects to this problem. In all of these stories, there is someone dying, a hero dying, in order for life to appear again. What does that say to you? Let me tell you one story here. Uh, this isn't a story, this is a, a, a ritual. It's in New Guinea. And uh, it's associated with the men's societies in New Guinea, and they are horror societies because they really enact the myth of death and resurrection and cannibalistic consumption. And you have the myth there of the buried body and the life coming out of it. You know, this is the basic myth. Now we're going to enact it. So uh, here's this sacred field, the drums going and chants going and then pauses. And this went on for three or four or five days, on and on. And rituals are boring, but they, they just wear you out, you know, and then you break through to something else. Then comes the great moment. 
the young boys who were being initiated into manhood were now to have their first sexual experience. There was a, a great shed uh, uh, of enormous logs supported by two uprights over here. And uh, the young woman comes in all ornamented as a deity. And uh, she is brought to lie down in this place beneath the, uh, the great roof. And uh, the boys then with the drums going and chanting going on, one after another, there are about six boys, uh, have uh, their first uh, permitted or public uh, intercourse with the girl. And when the last boy is with her in full embrace, the supports are withdrawn, the logs drop, and the couple are killed. There is the union of male and female again, as they were in the beginning before the separation took place. There is the union of uh, begetting and death again, and they're both the same thing. The little pair are pulled out, and uh, roasted and eaten right that evening, and enacting the myth in its essential character. Can't beat that. And the truth to That's which the, the sacrifice of the mass. One of the wonderful things in the Catholic ritual is going to communion. There you're taught that this is uh, the body and blood of the Savior. And you take it to you, and you turn inward, and there he's working within you. The truth to which the ritual point is? The nature of life itself has to be realized in the acts of life. When in the hunting cultures a sacrifice is made, it is, as it were, a gift, a bribe, as it were, to the deity that is being um, uh, invited to do something for us or to give us something. When a figure is sacrificed in the planning culture, that figure is the god. The person who died was buried and became the food is Christ crucified, from whose body the food of the spirit comes. There is a sublimation of what originally was a very solid vegetal image. He is on holy rood, the tree, he is himself the fruit of the tree. Uh, Jesus is the fruit of eternal life, which was on the second tree in the Garden of Eden. When man had eaten of the fruit of the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was is said to have been expelled from the garden. He had already expelled himself from the garden. The garden is the place of unity non-duality, non-duality of male and female, non-duality of man and God, non-duality of good and evil. You eat the duality and you're on the way out. So this tree of the non-duality is the tree of the exit. Now, the tree of coming back to the garden is the tree of immortal life, where you know that I and the Father are one, and the, the two that seem to become one again. And this is exactly the tree under which the Buddha sits. Tree of wisdom? The tree of immortal life, of the knowledge of immortal life. And the Buddha under his tree and Christ hanging on his tree are the same, the same image. They are the same image. The one who has died to the flesh and been reborn in the spirit.
This is an essential experience of any mystical realization. You die to your flesh and are born to your spirit. You identify yourself with the consciousness and life of which your body is but the vehicle. You die to the vehicle and become identified in your consciousness with that of which the vehicle is the carrier. Do you understand mm -hmm. me? And that is the God. So that what you get in the uh, vegetation traditions is this notion of identity behind the surface display of duality. Identity behind it all. All of these are manifestations of the one. The one radiance shines through all things. The function of art, in a way, is to reveal through the object here the radiance. And that's what you get when you see the beautiful organization of a fortunately composed work of art. You just say, aha. Somehow it speaks to the order in your own life. This is a realization through art of the very thing that the religions are uh, concerned to render. That, uh, that death is life and life is death and that it the is, two are in accord. You, you have to have a balance between death and life. They're two aspects of the same thing, which is being, becoming. And that's in all of these stories? All of them. I don't know one where, where death is rejected. This idea of sacrifice is so foreign to our world today. Well, the old idea of being sacrificed is not what we think at all. Huh? Um, just consider, I think the great model of sacrifice is the Mayan Indian ball game. You know, they had a, a kind of basketball game. It was a, it was a loop there up in the, uh, in the stadium wall. And uh, the idea was to get this big, heavy ball through that. I don't know how they did it with their shoulders. I had the something or other. And uh, the captain of the winning team was sacrificed on the field by the captain of the losing team. His head was cut off. And... Uh, Going to your sacrifice as the winning stroke of your life is the essence of the early sacrificial idea. The, uh, there's a wonderful story that I, I found in the Jesuit relations. You know, the Jesuits here in the 17th century as missionaries up in Canada and uh, northern New York State and so forth, of a young Iroquois boy who had just been captured by the Hurons, or perhaps it was the other way around, I've forgotten. And he was being brought to be tortured to death. The Northeast Indians uh, engaged in a, in a systematic torture, which would go on for a long time. And the, the ordeal was to be sustained with a smile without flinching. That was it. That was real manhood. But the boy is brought to this as though he were being brought to his wedding. He is singing. And the people with him are treating him as though they were his hosts. And he was the honored guest. And he played the game with them, knowing where he was going. And the priests describing the thing are absolutely bewildered by the situation. And they say that the mockery of this kind of hospitality for people who are then going to become the brutes. No, those people were the priests. And this was the sacrifice of the altar. And that boy was Jesus, you know, by analogy. And uh, the, the, the priest every day, every day is celebrating Mass, which is an imitation or repetition, actually, of the sacrifice of the cross. That's what this priest was witnessing. And, but then you have it also in, the, in the, John, uh, the Acts of John, Jesus before going to crucify, the Jesus dance. That's one of the most beautiful passages in the Christian tradition.
in the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels, it, it simply mentioned that we sang a, a hymn and uh, Jesus went forth. Well, here you have the whole hymn described in, in a ring. Jesus in the center saying, join hands and we'll sing and we'll dance. And he says, I am this, I am that, I am so forth, so forth. Amen, amen. Oh my God, it's grand. And then he walks out to be crucified. When you go to your death that way as a God, you are going to your eternal life. What's sad about that? Let's make it great. And they do. The God of death is the Lord of the dance. The God of death is the Lord of sex at the same time. What do you mean? It's a marvelous thing. One after another, you can see these gods. Gede, the god of uh, the, the death god of the Haitian voodoo, is also the sex god. Wotan uh, had one eye covered and the other uncovered, you see, and uh, at the same time was the Lord of, of life. Osiris, the lord of death and the lord of the generation of life. It's a basic theme. That which dies is born. You have to have death in order to have life. Now, this is the uh, origin thought, really, of the head hunt. In, uh, in Southeast Asia, and particularly in the Indonesian zone, the head hunt, right up to now, has, has been a, a sacred act. It's a sacred killing. Unless there is death, there cannot be birth. And uh, a young man before he can be permitted to, to marry and become a father must have uh, gone forth and had his kill. What does that say to you? Well, that every generation has to die in order that the next generation should come. As soon as you beget or give birth to a child, you're the dead one. The child is the new life, and you are simply the protector of that new life. Your time has come, and you yeah, know. Yeah, well, that's why there is this deep psychological association of begetting and dying. Isn't there some relationship between what you're saying and this fact that a father will give his life for his son, a mother will give her life for her child? There's a wonderful paper. I don't know whether you knew that I would love to have talked to this point. <laughs> There's a wonderful paper by Schopenhauer, who's one of my three favorite philosophers, um, called The Foundation of Morality. There he asks exactly the question that you've asked. How is it that a human being can so participate in the peril and or pain of another that without thought, spontaneously, he sacrifices his own life to the other? How can this happen? That what we normally think of as the first law of nature, namely self-preservation, is suddenly dissolved <clears throat> and there's a breakthrough. Uh, in Hawaii, uh, some four or five years ago, there was an extraordinary adventure that uh, represents this problem. Uh, there's a place there called the Pali, where the winds from the north, the trade winds from the north, come breaking through a great ridge of rocks and, and of mountain, and they come through with a great blast of wind. The people like to go up there to get their hair blown around and so forth, or to commit suicide, you know, like jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, the police car was on its way up the early little road that used to go up there, and they saw just beyond the railing that uh, keeps cars from rolling over, a young man uh, actually clearly about to jump and prepare himself to jump. Police car stopped. The policeman on the right jumps out to grab the boy and uh, grabs him just as he jumped and was himself being pulled over and would have gone over if the second cop hadn't gotten around, grabbed him, and pulled the two of them back. 
There was a long description of this. It was a marvelous thing in the, in the newspapers at that time. And um, the policeman was asked, uh, why didn't you let go? I mean, you would have lost your life. And you see what happened to that man. This is what's known as one-pointed meditation. Everything else in his life dropped off. Uh, his duty to his family, his duty to his job, his duty to his own career, all of his wishes and hopes for life just disappeared, and he was about to go. And his answer was, I couldn't let Go. If I had, and I'm quoting almost word for word, if I had let that young man go, I could not have lived another day of my life. How come? Schopenhauer's answer is, this is the breakthrough of a metaphysical realization that you and the other are one. And that the separateness is only an effect of the temporal forms of sensibility of time and space. And our true reality is in that unity with all life. It is a metaphysical truth that becomes spontaneously realized because it's the real truth of your life. Now, you might say the hero is the one who has given his uh, physical life, you might say, to some order of realization of that truth. It may appear that I'm one with my tribe, or I'm one with uh, people of a certain kind, or I'm one with, with life. This is not a concept. This is a, a realization. Do you see what I mean? No, explain it. And the concepts of love your neighbor and all are to put you in tune with that fact. But whether you love your neighbor or not, bing, the thing grabs you and you, you do this thing. You don't even know who it is. That policeman didn't know who that young man was. Schopenhauer says, in small ways, you can see this happening every day, all the time. This is a theme that can be seen moving life in the world. People doing nice things for each other. What do you think has happened to this mythic idea of the hero in our culture today? It comes up in an experience. I think, uh, I remember during the uh, Vietnam War, seeing in, on the television, uh, the, the young men in helicopters going out to rescue one of their uh, companions at great risk to themselves. They didn't have to rescue that young man. That's the same thing working. It puts them in touch with the experience of being alive. Uh, going to the office every day, it, it's, you don't get that experience, but suddenly you're ripped into being alive and life is pain and life is suffering and life is horror. But by God, you're alive. And it's spectacular. And uh, this is a case of being alive, rescuing that young man. But I also know a man who said once, after years of standing on the platform of the subway, I die a little bit down there every day, but I know I'm doing so for my family. <laughs> there are small acts of heroism right. that occur without regard to the nobility or the notoriety that you attract for it. That's right. And the mother does it by the isolation she endures well, in behalf of the family. Of the motherhood is a sacrifice. On our uh, veranda in Hawaii, uh, there, uh, there are little birds that come that Jean likes to feed. And uh, each year, there have been one or two mothers 
mother birds. And uh, if you've ever seen a mother bird plagued by her progeny for food, that the mother should regurgitate uh, their meal to them. And the two of them, or five of them in one case, flopping all over this poor little mother, uh, they bigger than she in some cases, uh, you just think, well, this is the symbol of motherhood. This is just giving of your substance and everything to this progeny. This should be it in marriage. A marriage is a relationship. When you make a sacrifice in marriage, you're not sacrificing to the other. You're sacrificing to the relationship. And this is symbolized, for example, in that Chinese image of the Tai Chi, the Tao, you know, with the dark and the light interacting. It's a well-known one known sign. That is the relationship of yang and yin, male and female, which is what a marriage is. And that's what you are. You're no longer this. You're the relationship. And so marriage, I would say, is not a love affair. It's an ordeal. And an the, ordeal. the ordeal is sacrifice of ego to the relationship of the two-ness, which now becomes the one. One not only biologically, but spiritually, and primarily spiritually. It's primarily spiritually. But the necessary function of marriage in order to create our own images and perpetuate ourselves and children, but it's not the primary one. No, that's, the, that's really just the uh, elementary aspect of marriage. There are two completely different stages of marriage. First is the youthful marriage, following the wonderful uh, impulse, you know, that nature has given us in the interplay of the sexes biologically and uh, in, in then the reproduction uh, of children. But there comes a time when the child uh, graduates from the family and the family is left. I've been amazed at the number of my friends who in their 40s or 50s go apart, who have had a perfectly decent life together with the child, but they interpreted their union in terms of relationship through the child. They did not interpret it in terms of their own personal relationship to each other. Utterly incompatible with the idea of of, of doing one's own thing. Uh, it's not one's own thing, you see. It is, in a sense, one's own thing, but the one isn't just you, it's the two together. Yeah. And that's a purely mythological image of the sacrifice of the visual, uh, visible entity for uh, a, a um, transcendent unit, cracking eggs to make an omelet, you know? Mm -hmm. And by marrying the right person, we reconstruct the image of the incarnate God. And that's what marriage is. The right person. How does one choose the right person? Your heart tells you it ought to. Your inner being. That's the mystery. You recognize your other self. Well, I don't know, but there's a flash that comes and you something in you knows that this is the one. Hmm? What has mythology told you about death? What do you think about death? Well, the, the way if one can identify with the consciousness of which the body is a vehicle and really achieve an identification with the consciousness of which the body is a vehicle, not knowing what it is, undifferentiated consciousness, uh, one can let the body go. I like what I heard of Woody Allen, you know, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> uh, you can have uh, disengaged yourself from the body and not be there, you might say. 
And yet, you know from myth and nature that uh, the body dies. It perishes. It rots. We're back to the beginning of the mother. So you expect it. They're growing old. I mean, you know what's happening. The body is rotting. It's dying. It's losing its energy. There's more mass than energy here. And the identification then with the, the life which in a plant survives pruning, cutting, and even eating, the plant is right back there again, is, a, is, a, is a, might say, a biological image that is metaphorical of this spiritual mystery. There's a wonderful report of the Indians riding into the rain of bullets from Custer's men, and they're saying, it's a good day to die. It's a great day to die. They're not hanging on. That's the message of the myth. You, as you know yourself, are not the final term of your being. And uh, you must die to that one way or another, in giving of yourself to something or in being annihilated, actually, physically, uh, to return, you might say, or to recognize. Life is always on the edge of death, always. And one should lack fear and have the courage of life. That's the principal initiation of all of the heroic uh, stories. What's the central story? Which Do you have a story that's central to this? The, uh, the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The Green Knight, uh, Arthur's court is in session, and uh, there rides into the court on a great big green horse, a giant knight. And uh, the knight says, I have a challenge. I have an adventure. I challenge anyone here to come down here and take this great big axe and cut my head off. And then one year from today, meet me at a green chapel and tell them roughly where the green chapel is, and I'll cut his head off. And the only knight who had the courage to accept this curious invitation uh, was Gawain. And uh, the knight gets off his horse, sticks out his neck, Gawain comes down with his axe and there's the head. And then the knight uh, stands up, picks up the head, gets on the horse and rides off, says, I'll see you in a year. Well, that year, everybody was very uh, generous to Gawain and he rides off for the year. As the day approaches, he finds himself before a little hunter's cabin and he thinks uh, he'll ask advice here as to where the Green Chapel is and tells him, I've got to be there in three days. And the hunter greets him, and uh, Gawain tells his story, and the hunter says, well, it's the Green Chapel. He's just down the way here. It's, it's about a couple hundred yards. And why don't you just spend the next three days with us, and uh, we'll entertain you, and, uh, and then you can go to this adventure. All right, very well. So the hunter says, well, I've got to go out for the day to on the hunt. And he says, you'll spend the night with us, and then in the morning I'll go forth, and uh, in the evening I'll come back, and I'll give everything I will have got during the day to you, and you give to me what you will have got during the day. But in the morning the hunter rides off, and Gawain's in bed, and in comes the hunter's gorgeous, beautiful wife. And she tickles Gawain's chin and um, uh, invites him to love. 
Well, he's an Arthurian knight, a knight of Arthur's court, and uh, to betray his host is the last thing that a knight can uh, submit to. So he resists this woman, and she's very, very aggressive, and he's very, very stern in his position. And finally she says, well, let me give you a kiss, anyhow. So she gives him one big smack, and uh, that's that. In the evening, the hunter comes back with a great haul of game, throws it on the floor, and Gawain gives him a kiss. And they laugh, and that's that. Second morning, a similar event. The wife comes in, and uh, Gawain gets two kisses. And uh, the hunter comes back with about half as much game, and he gets two kisses. They laugh, and that's that. The third morning, the wife comes in. Now, here's a man about to meet his death. He's about to have his head chopped off. Uh, a beautiful woman, the last moment I mean, of uh, the possibility of this wonderful fulfillment. And again, he resists. She gives him three kisses and her garter. And she says, this will protect you against any danger. The hunter comes home with just one silly, smelly fox throws down the ground. And he gets three kisses, but no garter. So comes the time now to go and have your head chopped off. Do you see what the, what the tests are of the night here? One is sex, you know, lust, and the other is courage. So he approaches the chapel, the green chapel with the green knight whom he's about to encounter. And uh, he hears the knight whetting this great knife, this great uh, axe. He comes to it, and the knight is there, certainly, the great big green fellow, and he greets him and says, okay, put your neck out there on this block, and I'll chop your head off. And he lifts the axe, and he says, no, stretch out a little more. He does this three times. And then the axe comes down and just cuts his neck a little bit. The Green Knight says, that's from the garter. Well, this is the origin of the Knights of the Garter. Here's a knight who really transcended the two great temptations, fear of death and lust for sex and uh, the joys of life. And the moral? And the moral is that the realization of your, your bliss, your true being, comes when you have put aside the, uh, what might be called, passing moment with its terror and with its, uh, its temptations and its uh, statement of uh, requirements of life, that you should live this way. What is that uh, story about, uh, and I forget where it comes from, about the, your, the camel and then the lion, and along the way you lose the burden of youth? The, the three transformations of the spirit. Yeah. That's Nietzsche. That's the uh, prologue to Thus Spake Zarathustra. Tell me that story. When you are a child, when you are young and a uh, young person, you are a, ca a camel. The camel gets down on its knees and says, put a load on me. This is obedience. This is receiving the instruction and information that your society knows you must have in order to live a competent life. When the camel is well loaded, he gets up on his feet, struggles to his feet, and runs out into the desert, where he becomes transformed into a lion. The heavier the load, the more powerful the lion. The function of the lion 
is to kill a dragon. And the name of the dragon is Thou Shalt. And on every scale of the dragon, there is a Thou Shalt imprinted. Some of it comes from 2,000 years, 4,000 years ago. Some of it comes from yesterday morning's newspaper headline. When the dragon is killed, the lion is transformed into a child, an innocent child living out of its own dynamic. And uh, Nietzsche uses the term, ein aussich rollendes Rad, a wheel rolling out of its own center. That's what you become. That is the mature individual. The thou shalt is a civilizing force. It turns a, a human animal into a civilized human being. But then the one who is thrown off the thou shalt is still a civilized human being. You see, he has been uh, humanized, you might say, by the thou shalt system. So his performance now as a child is not simply childlike at all. He has assimilated the culture and thrown it off as a thou shalt. But this is the way in any artwork. You go to work and study an art. You study the techniques. You study all the rules. And the rules are put upon you by a teacher. Then there comes a time of using the rules, not being used by them. Do you understand what I'm, mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So one way is, is, to, is to follow. I always tell my students, follow your bliss. Follow, follow your bliss? Your bliss, where the deep sense of being in form and, and, and going where your body and the soul want to go. Uh, when you have that feeling, then stay with it and don't let anyone throw you off. Have you ever read uh, Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt? Not in a long time. Do you remember the last line? I've never done the thing I wanted to in all my life. Quite a That's the man who never followed his bliss. Well, I heard that line. I was living in Brownsville when I was teaching at Sarah Lawrence. Before I was married, I used to be eating out in the restaurants of the town for my lunch and dinners. And Thursday night was the maid's night off in Brownsville so that all the families were out in the restaurants. And one fine evening, I was in my favorite restaurant there. It was a Greek restaurant. And uh, at the table was sitting a father, a mother, and a scrawny little boy, about 12 years old. The father says to the boy, drink your, your, drink your tomato juice. And the boy says, I don't want to. And uh, the father, with a louder voice, says, drink your tomato juice. And the mother says, don't make him do what he doesn't want to do. The father looks at her and she says, he can't go through life doing what he wants to do. <laughs> Said, if he does only what he wants to do, he'll be dead. Look at me. I've never done the thing I wanted to in all my life. I said, my God, Babbitt incarnate. Mm. And that's the man who never followed his bliss. Well, you may have a success in life, but then just think of it. What kind of life was it? What good is it? You've never done the thing you wanted to in all your life. What happens when you follow your bliss? You come to bliss. This should be it in marriage. I mean, that's the sense of the, of the marriage ceremony. In, uh, in the Middle Ages, a, f a favorite image that occurs in many, many contexts is the wheel of fortune. There's the hub of the wheel, and there's the revolving rim of the wheel. 
And if you are attached to the rim of the wheel, let's say fortune, uh, you will be either above, going down at the bottom, or coming up. But if you are at the hub, you're in the same place all the time. And that's the sense of the marriage uh, vow. You know, I take you in health or sickness, you know, in wealth or poverty, but I take you and you are my bliss, not the wealth that you might bring me, nor the social prestige, but you. And that's following your bliss. Now, I came to this idea of bliss because uh, in Sanskrit, uh, which is the great spiritual language of the world, and they know all about it and have known about it for a long time. Uh, the transcendent is transcendent. But there are three terms that bring you to the brink. You might say the jumping off place to the ocean. And the three terms are sat, chit, ananda. And sat, the word sat means being. Chit means full consciousness. And ananda means rapture. So I thought, I don't know whether my consciousness is full consciousness or not. I don't know whether my being is a proper being or not, but I do know where my rapture is. So let me hang on to rapture, and that'll bring me both being and full consciousness, and it worked. What was your rapture? Well, it started with Indians, and then it went on into more and more mythological matters and the realm of the arts, music, and uh, and. Uh, the, uh, the, the, when I met Jean, then the dance came in, and um, this is uh, this is it. To stay with that, and one doesn't have to be um, a poet to do this. Carpenters do it. A poet is Farmers. simply one who's made a profession and a lifestyle of uh, being in touch with that. Most people have to be concerned with other things. Uh, they get themselves. Uh, involved in uh, economic and other uh, activities, or you're drafted into a war that isn't the one you're interested in. And uh, how to, um, to hold to this um, umbilical, you might say, uh, in, on those circumstances, that's a technique each one has to work out for himself somehow. But uh, most people living in that realm of uh, what might be called uh, occasional concerns uh, they all have the capacity that's waiting to be awakened to, to move to this other place. I know it. I've seen it happen in students. Uh, wonderful way of teaching we had at Sarah Lawrence, where I taught for 38 years, uh, would ha I'd have an individual conference with every one of my students at least once a fortnight for half an hour or so. And there you're talking on about the things that students ought to be reading, and suddenly you hit on something that the student really responds to. You can see the eyes open, the complexion changes, a life possibility has opened there. And all you can say to uh, yourself is, I hope this child hangs on to that. You know, they may or may not. But when they do, they've found a life right there in the room with you. How would you advise somebody to tap that spring of eternal life, that joy that is right there? Well, we're having experiences all the time, which uh, uh, may, on occasion, render some sense of this, a little intuition of where your joy is. Grab it. No one can tell you what it's going to be. I mean, you've got to learn to recognize your own depths. Do you ever have this sense when you're following your bliss, as I have at moments, of 
being helped by hidden hands? All the time. It, it, it's miraculous. I even have a superstition that has grown on me as the result of invisible hands coming all the time. Namely, that if you do follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you. And, uh, and the life that you ought to be living is the one you're living somehow. And uh, when you can see it, uh, you, you begin to deal with people who are in the field of your bliss, and they open doors to you. I say, follow your bliss and don't be afraid, and doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be. Do you ever have sympathy for the man who has no invisible means of support? Who has no invisible means? Yes, he's the one that evokes compassion, you know, the poor chap. And and to see him stumbling around when uh, the water of immortal life is right there is uh, is uh, really, it evokes one's pity. Right there? Hmm? Right there? You yes. believe that? Yes. The waters of eternal life? Right there. Where? Wherever you are, if you're following your bliss, I mean, you're you're having that joy, that that uh, refreshment, that life all the time. Okay, we're back. Joseph Campbell, part two of our series. There's one more part to go that has two segments. Incredible discussion. Again, Joseph Campbell just imparting deep knowledge in the way that only he can so much going on there. I learned so much and really it's just about myth and how it aligns all aspects of life. And there's just really a lot that he covered there. Different cultures, mythological stories. I loved those stories. You learn so much from those stories. And then the similarities that were very striking for them to comprehend it makes sense to me. It's interesting that Joseph Campbell didn't tap into the fact that maybe the roots of the story were from a prehistorical culture that was deeply connected to each other. Many, many millennia before that. He didn't really postulate that as a potential. That's That was my first thoughts. Brian, what did you think about that? First, before I say what I think about it, I just wanted to clarify. You're saying that when he spoke of different cultures having the same mythology, even though they weren't connected, you're saying that potentially they were connected in a prehistoric time. Very far into prehistory. Right. Like well, in previous cycles of civilization, they were just really one people just carried over. It's always been one people, one story, I think. And then it translates into the different variations of cultures around the world that somehow they fragmented out. They went out on their own, but somehow at one point it was all this one thing and it was all one story. Right. I think that's quite possible. And also you see that in other realms. When he spoke of that, it made me think of, you know, similar architecture around the world or similar inventions or similar jumps in consciousness or evolution that happened at the same time at different points around the globe when it didn't seem like they were connected. And I know that's also happened with animals, plants, um, really any any species on earth where there's this greater layer of connection 
that is outside of the physical and then, you know, they seem to be unconnected and start doing things the same at the same time in the physical realm. Well, it was telling that Joseph Campbell was pointing out that myths help to acknowledge nature. And they're kind of an information storage device that's used to send this knowledge down through generations. So that's why the myths are similar. They have very similar structure and stories. You find this in various myths and legends across the world, across cultures, is because they're rooted in an original mythology and somehow that was used to transmit that data that information without technology it was an oral technology an oral tradition but somehow we're supposed to decode all of it right that just made me think of the akashic record like that somehow that's you know that people are accessing that knowledge base and interpreting it based on their own culture their own way of you know how they um, their belief system or their culture or their belief system. Yeah. And, you know, he talked about a lot of things. Look, I wasn't prepared for that one story about that tribal culture's sexual initiation for young boys. My God, the cannibalism. That's, that, ho- that's very shocking. Bryn, what did you think about that? Oh, my God. That was intense. And it's funny because that exact story just came up for another reason. Just a few weeks ago, I actually heard that um, as a story that Joseph Campbell had uncovered and relayed from a tribal tradition. And so, yeah, when we heard that tonight, I was like, oh, yeah, I just heard about that. That's <laughs> Gee, uh, that happens resurfacing. That's really interesting yeah that's talk about rite of passage what an interesting perspective of that that is a rite of passage same with the mayan ball game of the winning team gets sacrificed and they're like woohoo we're going out as the you know as the champions and that's something that they tried to do on purpose i'm well you know very uh different perspective than the kind of competition we have now and what winning means um it's a whole whole different thing interesting well, I'm going to say it's the wrong direction. Personally, I feel like that's not energetically correct. It seems terrible. Uh, I wouldn't call it a rite of passage. I'd call it a wrong of passage. <laughs> you know, My times God. change, you know. <laughs> I mean, somehow they got some bad information, those tribal cultures. Look, I'm not knocking them. But look, as humans, you know that that's not correct behavior in any situation so i don't even know what to say about that but kind of interesting though if you just think about it (laughs) not from a realistic perspective but if you just looked at it from a mythological or a, um, a symbolic type of perspective that the winner takes the sacrifice where if you look at our like say our modern western sports tradition where the winners like put on a pedestal and they get the medals and they get to say like neener 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 or whatever I don't know it's <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. okay. we are the winners I don't know okay. I, don't, I, don't, All right. I don't know but it's very different I think now juxtaposed with that that the winner takes the sacrifice but they didn't see it as a sacrifice they saw it as getting to meet their maker I don't 
It's all just yeah, interesting no, to think about in a symbolic way, not in a realistic way. Like I, I don't, doesn't sound fun to be sacrificed. It wouldn't make me want to win the soccer game perhaps, <laughs> you know, but, but I'm also coming from my perspective. Like I have no way of knowing how they felt about that. I mean, we just don't, we aren't just like you were saying at the beginning, like we don't have that experience to know how they felt. Well, it's a different paradigm. It's a different way of living. So these consciousnesses were processing reality in a different way and allowing that to be normal. So perhaps for their perspective of reality, for their personal universe, it was just real. And that's just how it was. And it worked. I don't know. I can't judge it. It just seems very barbaric and horrific to me. I'm sorry. I'm not going to eat humans. And, <laughs> I'm, I'm like the last. You don't want guy, your child to go like through that rite of passage. No, well, like, like the last guy. Like there's I already know. five guys before him, and then he's he the gets last. The short guy. end of the stick, really. Right? And then Anything? doesn't he doesn't even know? And then all of a sudden they pull the rug out. He's like, oh man, I'm number six. Whew, pulls the rug out. Oh, there's like spikes. You're dead. They're eating you. And do you know, I mean, do you no. know you're the last one? No, they don't know that sure? part. Only the elders know. Oh, so <sighs> here's the, here's the thing though. As myths, we actually don't have to go through those rites of passage. We can just learn from them and take away whatever there is to take away and uh, we don't actually have to go through those rites of passage. So there is that. And I do think it is important to reinstill ritual. Like Joseph Campbell was saying, it's very important. That's something that's lost in Western culture. It's just this concept of acknowledging what your blessings are that gratitude through ritual and ritualistic practice it seems like something that's definitely not part of mainstream western culture it's kind of creeping back in various ways through various filters but it's just not like in the mainstream as it would be in like native cultures and their mainstream mindset for sure there are a couple ways he referenced that when he spoke of the hunters and the way that they're <clears throat> the way that they respected and had gratitude and the whole ritual for the animals whose lives they were taking. And then also the rites of passage for the youth in upholding the societal norms um, and the, the roles of, of uh, what was important for them. And it is really interesting, you know, when Bill Moyers was asking you know, okay, well, so what happens to a society that doesn't have those rituals? And he's like, oh, go read the paper. Um, and you do see that. It, it seems like what is coming of age? It's like coming of age means you're legally able to go buy cigarettes and alcohol or go to bars or like, where's the, like the spiritual tradition of our rite of passage that definitely seems to have been lost. And I think that's a, thing that if we recovered it it would definitely change our society for sure well it is integrating higher frequency information it would then you know make us a more high frequency human we'd be having a better experience i think if we reincorporated that in our just direct lives personally just having a ritualistic approach to these Things that are really taken for granted in life. The native cultures, they did this for things around food and water and, and how they live and where they live. You don't do any of those things. Absolutely. And well, he talked about how 
that those things were, what did he say? They were thou's, not it's, that they were alive. The water's alive. The mountain's alive. The corn is alive. Like everything has a spirit and that spirit is worthy of recognition and reciprocity. It's such a different thing when, when nature is dead and it's just a thing to be used. It's such a different thing and it does change your psychology. It does change the way you view absolutely every second of your life. At least it does for me. And I think that there's really something to that if we approached everything as having spirit, like what what would that do? And of course there are still native cultures to this day that do that. And I think um, there's there's something to be, something would be beneficial for all of us in that. I think we would gain spiritually. We would just see the light and the love in everything. We would just see everything as alive and then we would just be resonating with it. And most importantly, I think we would be grateful. We would have gratitude. Absolutely. Just like I'm grateful for Bryn Anderson being here and joining us on this episode. I know you have some more notes, Bryn. What else do you want to talk about about this episode? It's been an incredible recording listening with you to Joseph Campbell. What else do you have here? Yeah, this has been super fun. I actually really love the rapport that Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell have. I think they do such a great interview together. Um, I don't know. It w- you know, listening to this is just really, he's just hitting on so many points that come up again and again in all the different people that we listen to and all the different people that you interview talking about how you are in a body, not that you are a body and and identifying with that consciousness and the overarching spirit that is driving that body and talking about how, you know, myths and stories are the symbology, is that a word, of the, uh, the paradoxes and polarities of life. And, uh, I don't know. There's just so many different little nuggets that are like, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that. I mean, they're all just really great reminders. Um, I love when he talked about the supportive invisible plane, that there was, there came a point in consciousness where we recognized that there was a invisible that supported the visible. That's a, a, that was a cool thing to just, I don't know, just sort of think of the visualization of that, that moment in consciousness of like, that that aha moment i guess yes and that invisible plane like you said is supporting the visible i love plane. that that was incredible and i loved also i just wanted to point out what you were saying about how he was describing his body getting older and <laughs> and just yeah. identifying with consciousness and then you just kind of are aware of your body and that's something that we talk about constantly of course Who's way ahead of the curve? Uh, Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. That seems very simple and easy to grasp. But yeah, I mean. I laughed because of what he said about the, you know, and at the end, he's like, there's more mass than energy here. You know, talking about the aging body. <laughs> that cracked me up. But yes, the, the point of that was, okay, watch it go, watch it crumble. But you're the consciousness inside. And as you get older and as that body starts to change and age and rot, as he said, I don't know if he was feeling like he was rotting at that moment but uh that you're identifying more and more with the consciousness behind the body with the invisible behind that visible plane it's it's really beautiful um so yeah i don't know i could go on and on i don't need to you guys all listen to the lecture that's really uh i'm sure yes and i appreciate you guys i appreciate you guys listening with us 
another incredible lecture episode. The next time we do a lecture episode, we're going to finish this series off with two more talks between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. Uh, wow. Right. Like that was like early eighties and he was just talking about the most heinous concepts. Very, very deep, but again, palatable. You can digest it. Like I said, intellectually, you can process it. Bryn, what else? I, I feel like you have like one or two more things, right? <laughs> you, you, got, you had a lot of notes here. I know I did have a lot of notes. I always like to take a lot of notes. And Joseph Campbell keeps the pen rolling and the mind's moving for sure. Um, <laughs> no, I just wanted to say last thing, shout out, uh, to Joseph Campbell's wife, Jean Erdman. Um, I, I was curious because he did mention her a few times and I looked her up and she lived, he died in 1987. That lecture was probably 1985, which is really cool to think about. You know, that was 30 plus years ago um, that he was um, talking about all of these things. But anyway, his wife just lived until May of 2020 and died at the age of 104. So wow. she was following her bliss, which we didn't even touch on that whole thing. So the following your bliss, but she definitely, I, I believe must have been following her bliss to uh, drive her body until the age of 104. Yes. 104. Yes. I did hear him mention his wife, Jean, 2020 she graduated and returned to joseph they're together now just so beautiful to think about and oh that made me think of one more thing oh go ahead <laughs> sorry no no go for it go for it Roll. okay but no just i was realizing we never even talked about the follow your bliss thing which is such a joseph campbell you know you see it on well, bumper yeah, stickers that's one of his and, huge themes of course and that you know and he got that from from you know his teachers as well uh but it, he just said this little tiny kind of passing comment. He didn't really even stop. It was just a passing comment when he said that when you're following your bliss, you begin to find others who are following theirs in the same way. And it just made me go off on a, a brain tangent of t our, all the things we've talked about, about frequency, that when you, you know, find whatever frequency you're on, you begin to find others on that same frequency and then yes, you keep the raising your frequency, the law of attraction. And so he was talking about you're following your bliss, then you find others and then your bliss just, you know, it's an upward spiral. And so anyways, that was just one of those little things that he just said in passing, but I was like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, he's really speaking to frequency and, uh, Anyway, that's cool. an intention. And intention, also yes. he's coming at it from a mythological Framework. lens, yeah. like a filter. He's not even coming at it from the energetic filter in the way that we process it. Like we were saying, law of attraction, we're looking at it from the universal law filter and lens, but he's coming at it from a from different a mythology way. lens. Yeah. Which and, is but, really cool. Yeah. And then coming to the same conclusion and just seeing it again as universal law. So, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So incredible, Bryn. <laughs> okay. I'm so glad you're here. That was so epic. We'll be back again next lecture episode. Like I said, we'll be closing this out and we have another interview and a very special episode coming up. The recordings I took as a guest official podcast of witch fest pdx so all that's coming up in the next few weeks i deeply appreciate you being here all of you listening 
deeply appreciate you learning with us as we listen to these episodes and these lectures together. It's so cool. I just want to express my gratitude to you, all of you out there, 145 countries and growing. The numbers are just growing daily. And I'm just so happy because every day there's new people discovering this podcast and I'm just giving, I'm putting my energy out there for you guys and loving you guys and you're loving me back. And it's such a great feeling and I just appreciate it. I just want to say that I want to express that Bryn, Thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you want to say before we go? No, thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure, always super fun and insightful and yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And she'll be back for the next beyond the news episode, which is coming very soon. Ooh, I wonder what you've dug up for that. Oh, there's some stories I've been saving. (laughs) There's so much going on. There always are. Okay, everybody. We will see you next week. Join us midnight on earth.